Our sermon scripture text this morning is First Epistle of John, chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. And be seated. Let me open us with a quick word of prayer again. Father, we want you to speak to us this morning, for we desperately need to hear words of life. And your voice alone is what gives life to our souls. So please speak. Your servants are listening. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was in eighth grade when I first read the uh, very well-known poem by Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. If you're not familiar with the poem, it's kind of a, begins with a man who's, who's, who's in a forest and he sees a road that forks and he's deciding which way to go. Uh, and he's kind of comparing, contrasting the two ways and he finishes with this line that even if you don't know the poem, you've probably heard this line, you've probably seen it on some inspirational poster somewhere. Where it says, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Obviously, I mean, it's like made for, you know, an inspirational poster, but the idea is it's kind of, you know, at least, I mean, there's actually some, like, subtle irony in there. We're not sure exactly what Robert Frost is getting at, but a lot of people take it as, well, you know, forge your own trail, kind of buck the status quo. Don't just do what everyone's doing. Do your own thing. Take the road less traveled by. That's made all the difference. And so there's something within this poem that resonates with us, which is why you probably remember that poem. But the reality is that life is never really that simple, right? I mean, when you're looking at choices, there's never an instance where you're like, I want to make a decision between A and B, and one is completely untraveled and B is completely traveled. Usually our choices are between choices that part of that choice may be less common, part of it may be more common. This gets messy and complex when you get down into kind of the granular level, level of how things work. But nonetheless, there's something about this poem that speaks to us. The fact that it makes this stark contrast, an either-or binary. When we look back at our life, we're like, yes, there's a way you can live in general, which is kind of off the beaten track, and there's something poignant about that. There's something true on kind of a meta level about the way that Robert Frost makes a stark contrast. Now, John, the Apostle John, loves to make stark contrasts too. Light, dark, and all the other ones. And in the text this morning, he's making a contrast as well. And again, John is not like Robert Frost, and that John is speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and everything he says is therefore true and trustworthy. But he's using a similar literary device. He's drawing this stark contrast that's supposed to show us something that's true, again, kind of that 
overarching, if you think of it as an eschatological level, in terms of the ultimate way things work and are, is true. And the, 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 the uh, stark contrast that John is drawing for us this morning is a contrast between two ways to live, one that's marked by hate and discord and murder, and he associates that with the way of the world and then the way of love that's most illustrated in the life of Jesus Christ and is how the Christian ought to live. And the second greatest test of authentic faith is walking in this way of love that he's going to contrast. So to give you an outline of where we're going this morning, again, the first point is going to be the way of hate. The second point is going to be the way of love. And the third point is the image of love. We'll follow along as I read again verse, this, uh, sorry, the first couple verses, verses 11 to 13. John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? It's because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. He begins with this reminder what's been true from the beginning. Uh, again, he's writing to a church that's had a schism. There's been so-called Christian teachers who've come in. They've taught things that were different than what they'd received from John and different from what John had received from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so John is reminding this church, this has always been what we preached. This has always been the message of Jesus himself, that we should love one another. And we're a very, uh, this is a very appropriate message for our context as a church which runs within the kind of evangelical renewal movement. This is something that we desperately need to hear. Uh, if you're familiar with the history of Christianity in America in the early 1900s, 1910s, 20s, 30s, there was a civil war in the churches uh, over questions of Christian teaching. Some of them were pretty basic questions. Who is Jesus? Is the resurrection true? And, and, and after the fact, it became known as the modernist fundamentalist controversies. And basically, church denominations, church congregations split into two camps that warred against each other. And the modernist movement Again, speaking very, very broadly, tended to uphold love as the primary virtue and eject kind of Christian teaching. The fundamentalist movement, on their hand, did the opposite. Again, speaking broadly, where they held a very strong line on Christian orthodoxy, but love was kind of ejected in the process. And we're the inheritors or the heirs of the fundamentalists. Again, the neo-evangelical movement. Guys, you've you got to love this church history. I know you guys were like, this is what you pay me for. Anyways, um... The neo-evangelical movement of the 40s and 50s came out of the fundamentalist movement. And it was basically people who agreed with their doctrine, but were like, I don't want to be quite as separatist as the fundamentalists are. I actually want to engage with the world. But nonetheless, that's, that's our grandparents, our great-grandparents in the faith. The people who said, I have great doctrine, and love is kind of not that important. And there's pockets within our churches today where we can still find that. So this is an appropriate message. It's the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. It's not secondary. It's not tertiary. It's primary. And a man who loves stark contrast begin with, begins with about as stark a contrast as you can get between the way of hate and the way of love. And he begins with the story of Cain. The story of Cain and Abel is one of the oldest stories of humanity in the Bible. If you remember, Cain and Abel are the kids of Adam and Eve. So let's uh, go ahead and, and read it over. We're looking at Genesis uh, 4, verses 3 to 8, just to familiarize ourselves with this story. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. 
Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he didn't accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. It's a tragic story, deeply tragic. You have to ask, why did Cain get so angry? What was going on? Well, God tells him something about his offering was unrighteous. We don't know what. People speculate. But Cain was envious of his brother Abel because Abel was doing what was right, and Cain was not, and that envy led to hatred, and that hatred tragically, although not unsurprisingly, culminated in murder. And the reason why I say not unsurprisingly is that hatred, the, the, the logic of hatred moves inevitably towards violence and murder. One commentator says, all hatred is murder in embryonic form. But here's John's point. The reason he talks about Cain, he's not saying this is some special case, some odd exception to the rule. He's saying Cain is kind of a prototype for how the world is going to work. And in fact, that way of living is still alive today, which is why he moves on in verse 13. So he says, Look, don't be surprised when the world hates you. The way of Cain, the way of hatred that leads to violence, discord, murder, that's still the way of the world. Now, we have to be careful, you know, what John means by this when he says that there's two ways to live, the way of hatred, which is what characterizes the world, and the way of love, which characterizes Christ and his followers. John is not saying that every non-Christian is just a hate-filled murderer, Unless you have grown up in the most insular Christian bubble possible, we have all met non-Christians who are kind and thoughtful people. And on the flip side, we've also met Christians who are some of the most hateful people we've met. But nonetheless, John is saying there is broad truth to this. The way of the world, the logic of the world, ultimately leads to hatred and to murder. And the reason why we don't see that, the reason why we see People who don't love Christ, who are kind and thoughtful people, it's because of God's common grace. This has been a teaching of Christians from the beginning. No one is as worse as they possibly could be because God restrains them. God gives rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He gives parental love to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God restrains us from falling as far as we possibly could. But sometimes, for, we don't know why, God's providence is mysterious, sometimes he withdraws his restraining hand. And then we see the logic of the world on full display. Examples of like this would be the Holocaust in World War II. I was reading an article a couple weeks ago about a Polish, uh, sorry, Jewish community in Poland, community of about 200 people, that was annihilated in the Holocaust. And what was so disorienting about this story is that um, this Jewish community had existed for generations in this town, They'd grown up next to their neighbors. They'd had very good relationships. They were friends from childhood with some of their neighbors. Yet when the Nazis came, their Polish neighbors turned on them and helped the Nazis send them off to concentration camps and extermination camps. And you've got to ask, where did that hatred come from? 
These weren't Nazis, right? These were normal Polish villagers, people that you would not be able to tell any different if they were walking on the streets of Germantown. Where did that hatred come from? Again, sometimes the way of the world, the logic of the world, which really does lead towards hatred and murder, sometimes it breaks through. And so John says, okay, so this is the way of the world, the way of Cain. Don't be like Cain. Don't hate and murder people. Got it, John. I will not hate anyone. I will not murder anyone. And yes, don't hate people. Don't murder people. Please don't do that. But I think John's being a little more settled than just that. John is one who sat at the feet of Jesus. He marinated in the teachings of Jesus. We see echoes of Jesus' teachings all throughout his letters. And so, for instance, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, this is what Jesus said. He said, You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. And if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus doesn't quite say that if you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart, but he gets close. He says the judgment is the same as if you murder someone or as if you simply call them an idiot in your heart, despise them. Now again, you may not hate someone in this moment. Maybe some of you have experienced genuine hatred in your past and maybe you're thinking, I don't hate anyone right now. So what does this have to say to me? But if you ever called someone an idiot, <laughs> someone cuts you off on the highway or uh, whatever, you get frustrated and you despise someone in your heart, what John is saying is there's two ways to live. One, th- and, and they both have their own logic and their bone, they're both, they have their own ultimate outcomes. And in the way of the world, the final ultimate outcome is violence, strife, and murder. And the beginning of that road is when you call someone an idiot in your mind. You're starting down that road. Beware. Be careful. It leads to a horrible place. Our hearts are incredibly deceptive. This is why we need grace. This is why we need a God who does not treat us according to how we deserve, but a God who sheds abundant grace on us through his son Jesus because our hearts are deceptive. Beware of this. It's a warning John has given us. Do not be like Cain, who's of the evil one. That's the way of hate. It's the first way to live. Brings us to our second point. The way of Christ, the way of the Christian, is the way of love. Follow along as I read verses 14 to 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, before we get on to the main point of this way of love, I want to focus on how John describes becoming a Christian. He says that right in verse 14. We know that we are Christians. He describes it as having passed from death to life. Something fundamentally important about that. To become a Christian is spiritual resurrection. It's being brought from death to life. Because of that, being a Christian is not something that we can inherit from our parents. It's not something that we're born into. It's not something that we can buy with money. It is something that God alone can do. Every Christian at some point comes to a crisis point where they realize their sin before a holy God and that only in Jesus Christ is there hope for forgiveness. And when they turn to Jesus in faith, not in perfect faith, but in the faith that God's given them, they were brought from death to life. So get that. 
when an eight-year-old prays a sinner's prayer, if they pray it sincerely, from the outside, it looks like nothing happened. But they have been resurrected to new life. Heaven is shaking in that moment. The, the Satan is, is screaming in anger. The, 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 the curtain in the temple has been torn in two. That's the reality of what's happening when someone turns to Christ in faith. They're resurrected to new life. But here's the thing. None of that's visible. We don't see that. It's an invisible reality. It's happening in the spiritual dimensions. So is there incontrovertible evidence that this has happened to someone, that they've been brought from death to life? And again, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Belief and faith is what saves us, but love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is the assurance that we really are Christ's, that we're his, that he has made us into new people. And this is why the kind of fundamentalist evangelical minimizing of love has been so tragic because love is the central virtue in the New Testament. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, we don't want to read too much in the order of that as if we're trying to find some kind of secret puzzle But the fact that love comes first is significant. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Love is the visible evidence of our faith which is unseen. And lastly, that great chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, there's three virtues that abide. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. It is the greatest of the abiding virtues. And love is a virtue without which we have nothing. Clanging gong. You can have all the theologies of the world memorized. You can have the perfect doctrine in the world. You can even have the most righteous life. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. Love is the chief virtue. And specifically, loving other Christians is one of the greatest evidences of authentic faith. This is what makes us, it's not what makes us Christians, it's what shows that we are Christians. Now, we have to confess there are all too many times when the church does not show this, where people are hurt in the church and the church does not love one another. And there's been kind of a, I don't know if I can use this phrase, a come to Jesus moment in the church. But I wonder if we've overdone it in the sense that we've begun to think that that's now the norm for churches to not love one another, for churches to abuse one another. And I don't, in my experience, it's not been the norm. I became a Christian right before high school. I attended high school, a big public high school. There were very few kids I knew who wanted to follow Jesus. I did not fit in. Um, I did not feel like I belonged. I was very shy and insecure. And in my youth group was a place I found belonging. The place I found people who loved me, who allowed me to be myself, Uh, who poured into me. I was in a small group with other high school guys led by two dads. One of the dads had a girl in the youth group. The other dad did not. Uh, And they just invested and poured into us for two years and mentored us. I've been trying to think, where do you see that kind of love outside the church, where two men who have their own families, their own kids, are willing to give up one night a week for two years to care for kids who are not related to them in any way? 
And I just, I can't. The closest I could think of is coaches, but coaching is typically how do you be a better athlete, and in the best case scenarios, you might have a coach who cares about more than that, but I, it's just, I don't, that doesn't happen outside the church. And here's the amazing thing. That happens in churches across the country where people care for one another and love one another. And of course, we have Vine Street. What a beautiful legacy of a church of very ordinary folk loving one another well for decades. I guess I just, I, I just want, you know, we need to be honest with our failures when it happens, but sometimes we can paint it out as if the church is no better than the world and, and, that's, and we just can't believe the Bible. And believe that. Resurrection has happened. And an important side note on this. Again, when John says this is the greatest evidence that you have passed out of death into life, he's not saying love in general. He's saying love specifically for the brothers. That's literally what it says in the Greek, but he's just love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for the church. That's the evidence. It's not just a generic feeling of love and and goodwill, but it's love for specific people, the people that you're sitting with right now. That's the greatest evidence that you're a Christian. So there's two corollaries we draw from that. That This is the greatest evidence that we have authentic faith. The first corollary, and this may sound harsh, but just hear me out, hear me out. You may not be a Christian if you don't love your church. Oof! You can send emails to my wife. I'm just kidding. Qualification we're not saved by our ability to love, and we will be frustrated with every church we're part of because church is full of sinners, it's pastored by sinners, and you're a sinner. But John says the evidence we are Christians is that we'll love those we fellowship with. So think of it like this. If someone stood up and says, I no longer believe in the resurrection of the dead, I think most of us would, would respond, well, I'm, I'm not sure you can be a Christian and deny the resurrection of Jesus. I just, I don't know how that happens. But how many times have we heard someone say, I love Jesus, but man, I can't stand Christians. And I think John's response would be, well, I, I just, I don't know if you can be a Christian and say that. Part of the way we know we're Christians is that we love those whom Christ also died for. Not in an abstract way, but the person sitting next to you on the pew who smells bad and makes noises and is weird. The fact that you love them, that's evidence that you've been brought from death to life. That's the first corollary. You may not be a Christian if you don't love your church, but the second corollary, again, pretty obvious, you can't love your church if you're not involved with your church. To love people, you gotta know them, right? You gotta show up for them. You gotta be present. And here's a beautiful thing about a small church, guys. There is such an option to be present in one another's lives because when we have fellowship time, it's not like greeting a bunch of strangers you'll never see again, but it's the people you see every week you got to work hard to not get to know people in this church. It's a beautiful opportunity for us to live this out, to love one another, to actually be the church. So again, there's two broad ways to live. There's this way of hate. The ultimate logic of it leads to murder. And there's the way of love that was illustrated to us by Christ. But again, sorry, that's the way of the Christian but the last question, which brings us into our last point, is what exactly does this love look like? This way of love we're called to, to love one another, what does that look like? And the last point is the image of love. We, we know what this looks like by looking at Jesus. Look at verses 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. How do we know what it means to love one another? Again, we look to Jesus. Jesus is who we're all about. He's the point of this all. He's the climax of the story of salvation. He's, he's the one towards whom all reality is pointing. And so if we want to know what love is, of course we're going to look at who Jesus is and what he did. And, and his death, his laying down his life for us is the center of our good news. It's not just a tragic event of, of, of a good man dying, but it's he died for us. Theologians will say his death was vicarious. You know, parents like to live vicariously through their kids when they play sports. Well, that's a bad example of it, but Jesus' death was vicarious. It was in our place for us. He took the sin we deserved. He took the, sorry, he took his sin upon us, the judgment we deserved, and he died to pay that penalty. It was atonement. But John's focus, of course, here is not on the atoning aspect of Christ's death. We don't atone for one another. It's on the fact that it was sacrificial. It was self-sacrificial. If the logic of the world leads towards hatred, strife, and murder, the taking of one someone else's life, the logic of the love of Christ leads to laying down our own lives for the good of others. If you've been able to keep up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, maybe because you're unemployed, no, I'm just kidding. There's just so many movies now. Um, but you've probably seen The End Game. It's a really good one. And you know, in, in the end game, they're trying to find all the infinity stones. And if you haven't seen this movie, I'm sorry, it sounds really weird, but they're trying to find these infinity stones to undo th- what Thanos did by killing half the universe. And there's two main characters who've been there from the beginning, named Black Widow and um, Hawkeye. And they're sent to get the soul stone. And they get there, and they realize in this very insidious, tragic twist of, of and I don't know, not really fate, but basically to, to acquire the soul stone requires a sacrifice of a life. So there's a big mountain, and, and basically there has to be a dead person at the bottom of that before you can get the soul stone. It's a life for a life. Now, when Thanos gets it, of course, he kills his own daughter, throws her down the cliff. That's how he gets the soul stone. But Hawkeye and Black Widow, when they find this out, they also begin to fight, but it's a very different sort of fighting because they're friends, and they love one another, and they're actually fighting to see which one of them is willing to lay down their life for the other. And it's this like tragic and beautiful scene where they're just leveling their greatest martial expertise to beat the living, you know, whatever out of each other so that they might be the first to offer themselves for the other. This is what Jesus did for you. The same sort of urgent, doing what it takes to lay down their life for another. This is what Jesus did for you. He endured insult and mockery and beating that he might throw himself into the abyss of death for you. And as a, again, a quick side note, this is a Jesus we can trust. Jesus would lay down his life for us. It's a Jesus that we can trust. When we come to aspects of the Christian faith that are frankly just hard to understand, hard to accept, even the reality of hell, election, suffering, and evil. We trust Jesus. We may not understand all parts of our faith, but this Lord we trust. When our life takes turns we didn't think it would take, when the script that we had written for our lives is not the one that we have, when God withholds things from us that we really want, we don't know why, again, This is a Jesus we can trust. He laid down his life for us. 
And this great act was given to us as a model for how he, how we ought to love one another. Again, this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. There's two aspects in this that John is trying to draw out in how Jesus loved us when he laid down his life for us. And the first is that he loved us unconditionally. Jesus, he didn't just go after those who were like him, after the religious good people, after the, even the Jews. His invitation was for any who would come to him. He laid down his life for the doubters, the unfaithful, the forgetful, the frustrated, the disenchanted. He loved not those who were just like him, but he, he was friends with sinners and tax collectors. His love was unconditional. It didn't matter who you are. It didn't matter. Now, we may find love in the world, again, outside of the Christian church, because God's grace is shed on everyone. Oftentimes, though, it's conditional. When I lived in Washington, D.C., um, you know, D.C. is where, like, political nerds go to live after they graduate college. And, um, and so, you'll ha- and so you, you know, you'll have people working at political offices or nonprofits, and, and they can form these very deep bonds because you're with people who are passionate about the same things you're passionate about. Um, you form very deep friendships, but, but it's, it's conditional, uh, the, the belonging you experience is based on you being on their side. And so you jump the aisle, you're out. I, I remember I had a boss, uh, I worked at a nonprofit. I had a boss who used to be the um, press secretary for a senator, and she told me, like, she wasn't a Christian, so the way she would, like, try to meet friends, or, or I, I guess probably guys, uh, she'd go to, like, bars, right? And, and the first thing you're asking someone is, who do you work for? And it's like, you work for the other side, conversation's over. I have no interest in you. It's conditional. But Christ laid down his life for Republicans and Democrats and Independents and Green Party people, if that's even a thing anymore. Laid down his life for the rich and the poor, for white collar, for blue collar. His love was unconditional. And second, Christ loved us sacrificially. He laid down his life for us. So that means he gave up his most important possession. Nothing we have compares to our life. Our life is the most important possession we can have. Think of it, you know, like whatever is your favorite possession, a guitar or a house or a car, like none of that matters if you're not alive to enjoy it. Your family doesn't really matter if you're not alive to be with them. And so what it says is that Jesus, it's not like Jesus gave up a lot for us or man, he really sacrificed for us, or he kind of gave something, he gave everything for us. It was a sacrificial love. That's what it means that Christ loved us. This is how we ought to love one another. Daydream with me for a second. Imagine a church where it was the norm for all the members to love one another unconditionally, at the cost of themselves. Imagine what that church would be like. That's Jesus' plan for his church. It'd be a place where you can come and be who you are. We will find acceptance and belonging. The lost can be found. People will run after you when you wander. That would be the aroma of the grace and the goodness of God.
And as Christians, we naturally long for that. So where do we start? Well, John says we start by being practical. Again, verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here's the, the fact of the matter is, you know, very few of us will ever be in a place where we will actually need to lay down our life for a brother or sister in Christ. Again, unless you, um, you know, go be a missionary in North Korea or something, you're probably just never going to be in that place. Now, it's very inspiring to think about laying down my life for a brother or sister in Christ, but realistically, probably not going to happen. So what do you do? Well, it's going to be far more likely that you'll run into Christians who need things that you can provide. Now, John refers to the world's goods, finances. That's an obvious one, but there's a whole lot of other ways. Uh, If you're a young, strong person, you can lift things that maybe an elderly person couldn't. You have something that they need. Um, You know, sometimes just providing an emotional presence to someone who desperately needs a listening ear as providing something that someone needs just giving time to people. If you have a car, there's people in our church who don't have cars. You have something that someone needs. That's where we start. That's where, the, that's where we begin to grow this community that loves each other in the way that Christ has loved us, unconditionally, sacrificially. In other words, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth. Saying, look, let's just not love each other by talking about love and analyzing and drawing out its theological virtues. Let's actually do something with it because that, in the end, is what true love is. Deed and truth. So, quick application. What is one practical way that you can show love to a brother or sister in this church this week? Um, Is there someone who you could provide physical help to? Is there someone you can give your time to? Even just being willing to hang out after church for a couple minutes and just listen to people. Perhaps you just write an encouraging note to someone. That's a very practical way that can really bless someone's life. Hey, I see God's gifted you in these ways and you're such an encouragement to me. Thank you. Very practical way we can show love. What is one practical way you can love someone sitting in this room this week? When we do these things, this is evidence that we really are Christ's and that he has made us into new creations. Let's pray. Jesus, you laid down your life for us. Help us to rest in that. May that be new to us every day. May that not grow stale. And may we learn what it means to love one another in that way, to know that that is where true life is found. It's not found in receiving, but in giving. For in that way, we begin to model you and begin to walk more closely with you. And that is what our hearts long for more than anything. We pray this in your holy and majestic name. Amen.